Let me invite the rest of you who are remaining to uh, turn with me to John chapter 6. Today we have a lot of ground to cover, verses 22 through 59. If you would keep your Bibles over, open throughout the sermon, you can refer back to it as we move along. This is God's Word, beginning at John chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that, anyone who has seen the Father, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. We thank you that you make it known in your word who you are and what you require of us, and that you have made it most clearly known who you are and what you require of us in the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. He is God incarnate, the son of God, the son of man. We look to you, Lord Jesus, today and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us more of Christ, that we would feast on him by faith today. And so doing, we would find that we are overflowing with the satisfaction that comes only from him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. How much do you spend a week on your groceries? Those of you that uh, keep a regimented budget probably know precisely how much you spend on groceries each week. If you have teenage sons, you probably spend more than the average family on groceries each week. Let me put the question a little differently. What percentage of your annual income goes towards your food? What would you guess? 15, 20%? I read a study this past week that was done in 2015 which says there are only eight countries in the whole world that spend less than 10% of their annual income on their food. You can guess which country was at the top of that list. You're in it, the USA. The USA tops that list with spending only 6.4% of the average annual income on your groceries. Singapore was a close second at 6.7%. Think about it for a moment. This has enormous implications on how we think about food in comparison with the rest of the world. Because this study went on to tell us that Nigerians spend 60, I'm sorry, 56.4% of their annual income on food. And Kenyans, second to last or second most, spend 46.7% of one's average income on their food. Scholars tell us that in the ancient world, in some cultures, people would spend up to 80% of their annual income, however that income came, on their sustenance, on their food. We need to keep this in mind because we just came off a day yesterday from the day we just read about, where Jesus fed over 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish that these hungry people came with nothing to eat and miraculously this rabbi, Jesus from Nazareth, is able to feed them all immediately and mysteriously. 
can you imagine the economic possibilities for these people as they began to calculate that this man could provide food for them? How they wouldn't need to worry about how to put a meal on the table for their families anymore if this guy could do this every day? Can you imagine how much it would boost their wealth and increase their portfolio, if you will? This is why these crowds were following Jesus across the Sea of Galilee. Probably not all 5,000 of them, but enough of them that there were crowds, that they looked for Jesus, were searching for Jesus, the text tells us. They were mystified as to Jesus' whereabouts. They woke up the next morning. They had seen the disciples get in that one boat and go off, but Jesus wasn't with them. We're not sure where he went. And then they wake up in the morning, and the other boat that Jesus naturally would have taken was not there. So after looking for a while, and as boats from Tiberias come over, they all hitch a ride in these boats, and they make their way from the east coast to the west coast of the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, and there they find Jesus. And they find Jesus teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. That's what the last verse of our text told us today. And they begin to interrupt him. Rabbi, when did you get here? I'm told that there are some evidence that in the synagogues in the first century on some occasions that it would be a custom for the people that are listening to the sermon or listening to the teaching would be able to shout back questions or to ask questions. Now, don't get any ideas. We're not going to accept that today. That's no longer how we do sermons. They are monologues, not dialogues, and appropriately so, but that's for another sermon to say why that is the case. But whatever the event is, they interrupt him with five different questions. For those sticklers, there are seven questions, but there are five questions, really. Two of them are asked in two different ways. Question one is in verse 25. Rabbi, when did you come here? We've been looking all over for you. We didn't find you on the other side of the lake, so we came over here. When did you get here? And while we're at, at it, how did you get here? Because your boat is still on the other side. Now notice Jesus doesn't answer this question directly, but imagine for a moment that he did. Imagine if he said to them, well, I got here about three or four this morning. It was still dark. Well, then how did you get here? Oh, I walked across the lake. Can you imagine how that conversation would have gone? And the series of questions that would have been asked if that's how he answered their question. But that's not what Jesus is interested in because they're not really interested in Jesus himself. The text tells us that they were seeking Jesus. But here, Jesus responds in verse 26 and 27 to this first question to expose their disingenuous seeking, to challenge their motives. As he says, you're only seeking me because your bellies were filled. You didn't see the sign and realize that the sign points to me, the, the maker of the sign. You failed to see what I have come to do and what I have come to provide. Remember, these people would have seen dollar signs in Jesus' ministry. The amount of income that they could have had for leisure, for things, for stuff, for vacation, for early retirement, if he could provide for them every day. They worked day after day for food. That's what people did in the ancient world, and that's what most people do around the world. Whereas we just go down the street, pull out our plastic card, and pay for things that are wrapped in cellophane. Most of the world does not work for leisure, for early retirement, for things, and for stuff. Most of the world works, and throughout history, 
works to eat. No work, no bread, no life. And Jesus fed them to their heart's content with 12 baskets left over. Imagine the possibilities this crowd is thinking. So Jesus says to them, do not work for food that perishes. You do that every day. You people toil and you work the ground, your livestock. Do not work for food that perishes, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for the Father has set his seal on him. They yet still are still focused, fixated upon the physical bread that Jesus had given them, and they want more. So question two, verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? They pick up on Jesus' word when he says, do the work that endures to eternal life. And so they, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God. This and this alone. That you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. There's no other work that you can do that will impress God. There's no other work that you can do that will earn God's acceptance of you. There's no works that you could possibly do to stack up against God's perfect requirements in his law. The work that God requires for sinners is to believe upon the sinless one, Jesus Christ. Because eternal life, the food that endures forever, that is offered in Jesus, is a free gift of God. Because what we earn before God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, the wages of our sin equals death. So the paycheck you get on the other side of your works is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are no works you can do or I could do that could earn or achieve God's favor, approval, acceptance, or forgiveness, or any entrance into his heavenly home. That's why we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 55, didn't you hear so many of its hints, so many echoes from Isaiah 55 and John 6? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, think of that crowd, they had no money. Come eat and buy, come, with, uh, come buy wine and milk without price. You spend your money on that for which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. It's as if Jesus is saying the words of Isaiah 55. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. He calls himself true food and true drink later on in our passage. Incline your ear and come to me. The same expression that Jesus uses in John 6. Come to me and hear that your soul may live. This is Jesus' personal invitation to them on that day, and this is Jesus' personal invitation to you on this day to come to him and to receive freely of him and him alone. Lay down your works by which you have tried to prove yourself to God and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But still, they're focused on the here and now. Still, the crowds are fixated on the physical bread. Question three comes in verse 30, and it comes in two questions. What sign will you give that we might believe? What work will you do, will you perform? Basically, the crowds are saying to Jesus here, prove it. Prove yourself to us. Yes, we saw your miracle yesterday. 5,000 people, that was pretty impressive. Wow. 
But don't you remember that Moses fed thousands upon thousands of people from manna from heaven for 40 years? One day, keep it coming. Keep the bread coming. Keep the food coming. Then Jesus provides the needed corrective here in verse 32. He says, it was not Moses who gave you past tense this bread, but my father who gives you present tense true bread from heaven. They had their physical sustenance. They were fed, but that was ultimately God who brought that manna down from heaven, which was simply a picture of what was to come. Me, the true bread from heaven, I come down from heaven. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, who gives life, not just to Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, but who gives life, verse 33, to the world. They weren't impressed with this miracle of feeding 5,000, but they were impressed by Moses feeding maybe 600,000 for 40 years. Couldn't they be impressed by the true bread from heaven who comes down from heaven to feed the world from every tribe, tongue, and nation? And what do they say immediately? These are opportunistic people. <laughs> Verse 34, Rabbi, give us this bread. That's what I want on the menu. I'm ordering that bread. Give us that bread. Imagine what it could do for our family. You know, a lot of people still come to Jesus this same way. The churches are filled with people like this who come to Jesus for what he can give them on their own terms and what they determine they need. I sometimes marvel why in our country and around the world so many people are attracted to what's often called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. That gospel that says, if you come to Jesus, your life will be great. You'll have enough money. You'll drive a fancy car. All your bills will be able to pay. Your family will be pristine and perfect. That's the prosperity gospel. That's the health and wealth gospel. Why are so many people fooled by that? That's, first of all, if you're unclear, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is anything but the gospel of Jesus Christ, then why are people so attracted to that? Because people want Jesus on their own terms for what he can do for them. They don't want Jesus on his terms for who he is for them. So Jesus has had enough. In verse 35, he begins his first of seven I am statements, as they're known. And this first one is, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The crowds were looking for Jesus to provide the bread when Jesus is saying he is the bread. He is the bread. And whoever comes to him shall not hunger. I want us to focus for a moment, just for a moment, on the word whoever. Whoever you are, if you have a gnawing sense of emptiness, kind of like a hunger pain, but in the soul, Whoever has a gnawing sense out there who's listening to this sermon today, a gnawing sense of guilt or shame or brokenness, if you know things are really not well in your inner man, in your inner woman, then Jesus is personally inviting you today to come freely to him. Whoever will come, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, however much of a mess you've made of your life, Jesus welcomes those kinds of people to come. To come not to a set of didactic, dogmatic statements, as important as those things are, but to come to a person, the second person of the Trinity, to the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Whoever you are, come.
The second part of this I am statement I want us to focus on briefly is these two verbs. Comes to me and believes in me. This word in the original gives the sense that this is a continual coming. This isn't once and for all kind of coming and believing in Jesus. We know that when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, in that sense, you you know that you've you've been born again. You've, You've been brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from despair to hope, from being far off from God and separated from God to now being close with God by putting your faith in the bread of life, by trusting in Jesus Christ. And yes, that is a a once for all type thing, but what Jesus is saying here even more than that is continually day by day over and over come to Jesus. I went to a funeral this past week. That was wonderful that was read there, a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I had heard a while ago but had forgotten about. It's worth quoting here about coming back to Jesus if you already know him coming day by day, moment by moment, in your most beautiful moments and your ugliest moments. This is what Spurgeon says. It is always the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite. He is constantly trying to make us look at ourselves instead of Christ. Satan insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You have such a wavering hold on Christ. All of these thoughts are about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is everything. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you, it is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ that saves you, although it's the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, do not look so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Do not look to your hope, but to Jesus, who is the source of your hope. Do not look to your faith, but to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of your faith. You will never find happiness by looking at your prayer life, by looking at your deeds, and by examining your feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives the soul rest. If we are to overcome Satan and to have peace with God, it must be by looking to Jesus. If this offer so free, And the satisfaction that Jesus promises here is so full. Why in verse 36 does he say, you see me, but you don't believe me? Has his mission failed? Is Jesus having no success here? And he answers those questions with verse 37, one of the most enormously comforting passages for all believers. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, whoever there's that word again, comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Who then comes to Jesus and believes in Jesus? Why, aren't these, why isn't this crowd coming to him? Because only those and all of those whom the Father draws come to Jesus. If the Father in his electing love, in his irresistible grace by his Spirit's power does not draw, one will not come. 
But if the Spirit does draw irresistibly to the broken, bruised, and sin-sick soul, he draws in such a way to show the heart, to show the soul the perfections of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, that he's a friend of sinners. He's most comfortable around sinners because those are the ones he came to save. When God the Spirit is drawing you, you cannot resist it, and all who have been drawn know what this is like. It is not as if he's moving against your will or he's twisting your will. He is gently, sovereignly endearing your will by his will to trust in Jesus. And if you've been drawn near by the Spirit, he says, he will never cast you out. This means every time, brothers and sisters, you turn to Jesus, he will never dismiss you. He will never shun you. He will never, ever snub you, even in your worst moments. He loves you with an unwavering love, the unwavering eternal heart of God. This truth is turned into a prayer by an author named Paul Tripp. He says it this way. This truth is such a comfort to me, such a source of hope and strength and daily joy. It gives me reason to get up in the morning and to press on even when I'm discouraged and weak and lonely and afraid. It gives me reason to face with courage the struggles within and the difficulties without. It reminds me that I can stand before you, God, as I am, completely unafraid and ask you what I have asked over and over again and what I'll continue to ask for your forgiveness and for your help. What gives me courage? What offers me this hope? It is this one thing I know for certain that there are two words that I will never hear from you. I know that you will never look me in the eye and say to me, go away. You will not send me from your presence. You will not drive me from your grace. You will not separate me from your love. You will not eliminate me from your promises. You will never, ever, ever send me away. But not only that, four times in this text we're told that he will raise us up on the last day. He is the author of our faith, the sustainer of our faith, and the perfecter of our faith. Four times in different occasions he says, I will raise you up on the last day in triumphant joy where you will know the bread of life and the full satisfaction that comes now we get in part by faith, but then we'll get by sight when we will see him and we will believe him like we've never believed him before when he raises us up on that last day. What a day that will be. But back to our question. So we have two more, and we'll go quickly. Question four is, comes in verse 41 and 42. They're grumbling here in the synagogue, remember where we are, basically asking the question, who does this guy think he is? We know his mom. We know his dad. We know where he's from. We know the neighborhood he's from. Where does he get off saying these things? And Jesus silences their grumblings, just like God sought to silence the grumblings of the wilderness wandering Israelites. And he says the reason, and he repeats what he says in 37 and 38, the reason you are grumbling and the reason you are not coming to me is because God is my Father clearly not drawing you because if his electing love was operative in your hearts, you would come to me. And then he repeats again, because I'm the bread of life. You keep looking to what I can provide, the bread for you, but I am the bread for you. 
Your fathers that you thought was a fantastic miracle of Moses ate their manna in the wilderness and still died. They're all dead. You eat of me and you'll live forever. Question five, verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And here's where things seem to get strange. Jesus is calling us to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Of course this is metaphorical. Of course it is. What he's trying to get at is just as you eat bread to live, just as you eat food to live, so to live spiritually and to live eternally, you must feast by faith and eat and drink of Jesus Christ. They must come to him and believe in him. That's what he means when he says, eat and drink. Now, some have thought throughout the history of the church that Jesus here is talking about communion, talking about the Lord's Supper, maybe tangentially, maybe secondarily, but I think something more fundamental is in the mind of Jesus. And it's not communion, it's to what communion represents and points to. What he's talking about here is his flesh. He's talking about the cross of Calvary. He says, the bread I give you will give you for the life of the world is my flesh that in time will be hung on a cross, nailed to a cross, and my flesh, my body will be broken, my blood will be shed for you, my life given as a ransom for yours, so that you who were dead in your trespasses and sins would live my death for your life. The wages of your sin which resulted in death, I'll take in my flesh and die so that you might feast on me by faith and be full to overflowing. We get our food down the street at the grocery store that's nicely packaged, beautifully packaged. We bring it home and we eat it and we, most of us don't think twice about it. But what's not missed in an agrarian society such as this one is what must happen in order to get food that's gonna make you stay alive. It has to die. That hamburger you ate last night, a cow had to die for you. Those eggs you had this morning, a chicken that could have lived, died for you. That bread you had this morning, wheat, had to be harvested, cut, and die for you to live. If it didn't and you didn't take it in, you don't live. But if it does die and you take it in, you do live. That's what Jesus is saying here. It must die first. You're not gonna believe this, but yesterday I'm walking through the kitchen and my son's watching this show that we've begun to watch called Alone. Maybe some of you have seen it. This is when 10 contestants are given 10 survival um, things. They can pick out of 40 things, they can pick 10 things, just 10, to survive for 100 days in the Arctic by themselves to provide food and water and shelter amidst all of the elements. And as I'm walking through, thinking about this sermon and thinking about this part of the sermon, I listen into what's being said. And one of the contestants had just killed a porcupine. Can you imagine eating a porcupine? But just killed a porcupine. And you, you're not going to believe me. This, I had him rewind it and I wrote it down. This is what she said. She said, I don't like taking life. And I don't like being a killer. But I feel like his life was a gift to mine. That's precisely what's going on in Jesus' death, in giving up himself to satisfy our hungry souls.
oh, how much more significant a plane are we talking about here when Jesus says, if I die for you, you will live my death for your life. The way to eternal life is through my sacrificial, substitutionary death. As we said at the beginning, all this takes place in a, in a synagogue. Is that a throwaway uh, verse? Do we need that? Tells us some information about where, where this is happening. I think if we apply it to, to our day, it tells us this. That every week, churches are filled with people who come to church and think because they come to church, they'll get eternal life. They've come to church, but they have not come yet to Christ. Churches are filled with them. If that's your situation, if that's your circumstance, what's the application of this sermon for you? What's the works of God? To believe in him whom God has sent to satisfy your eternal longings, the forgiveness of sins and peace with God. There'll come a day where you'll eat your last meal. You'll drink your last cup of cold water. But if you've drunk of Christ, if you've eaten of Christ by faith, that won't be your last meal. You will feast in glory forever in his eternal, joyous presence. But if you've already come to Christ, and I know many of you have, you don't just come to church thinking that somehow that pulls favor with God. But if you've already come to Christ, what's the application for you? It's the same. But it's to come over and over, to believe over and over again as we perpetually feast on Christ and all of the delights of his gospel, we're going to find that all of our hungers for other things and hunger for sin diminishes to the extent that we are full of Christ. Eating freely of his lavish goodness and provision will fill our hearts with God's blessings and joy and peace and leave us with a profound sense of who we are, his children, that he will never leave and never forsake, but he will raise us up on the last day to feast no longer by faith, but by sight in his presence. What a day that will be. Let's pray. Father, I pray for any in this room today who have sent some strange, mysterious tugging in their heart or soul that somehow you are present drawing them. Today they've heard what might be going on. We pray for them, that they would sense your compassion, your gentleness, your kindness, and your love, and they would receive this free gift, this free meal in Christ. Give them faith, Father. And for all who do have faith, Father, make us stronger in faith, enable us to endure, and help us to know that it's not even at the end of the day our faith, but it is Christ, all of Christ. And for him, we give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.